Welcome to the Compelling Words Podcast. The Word of God is meant to move us. It's meant to call us to action. Listen in as Kevin Purdy teaches and presents a genuine and compelling message from the Word of God. The sea can be a very dangerous place. The sea can be a very dangerous place, and the evidence of that is found way down deep at the bottom of the ocean floor. There are some very dangerous channels in the ocean that hundreds of ships have been sunk in. Uh, There's a place called the Graveyard of the Atlantic, and it's just off the coast of North Carolina. It's estimated that there's about 5,000 ships that sank in that location. 5,000, that's a lot of ships that have gone down in that one location. The Bermuda Triangle lies between the southern coast of Florida, Puerto Rico, and the island of Bermuda. It's the resting place for 75 airplanes and thousands of shipwrecks. According to the World Atlas, an estimate shows that more than 3 million shipwrecks lie on the ocean floor. All the way from simple canoes from thousands of years ago to the modern day ships of today. The Battle of the Atlantic during World War II grounded 3,500 merchant vessels, 783 submarines, and 175 warships. Most of the ships sank between the 18th century and the early 20th century, and a lot of them were known to carry very valuable cargo. So among that undiscovered wreckage, there might be, there still might be great treasure laying down there somewhere. Don't go rushing off for it yet. You know, because this surprised me quite a bit. Only 5 to 10% of the ocean floor has actually been explored. Only 5 to 10% of the ocean floor has actually been explored. That means that 90 to 95% of the bottom of the ocean has never been seen. There might be a lot of treasure down there. Who knows? There's a lot that is unknown and mysterious about the deep, deep ocean. Psalm 130 Verse 1 and 2 says this, it says, Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ear be attentive to my cry for mercy. This psalm is one of the songs of ascent, and we've been talking about those for the last couple weeks. It's one of the psalms of ascent. It's one of the songs that the Old Testament people of God would sing as they traveled to Jerusalem. As they traveled up to Jerusalem for one of the annual festivals, this is one of the psalms that they would often sing. It's also in a category called penitential psalms. A penitent. It's a, it's a psalm of confession because it has an attitude of sorrow. 
It has an attitude of remorse and an attitude of repentance. Out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. Notice where we are. Notice where we are as we cry out to God. We, we cry out, it says, we cry out from the depths. We cry out from the depths. And just like the ocean floor, it's a place of darkness. It's a place of wreckage and destruction. It's an isolated, unreachable place, a place that seems to have no hope whatsoever. You see, you see the depth for us isn't a physical place. It's a spiritual condition. It's recognizing, it's recognizing the guilt of our sin and where that leaves us. Because when we are buried underneath all of our sin, we are far, far, far away from God. Do you feel the weight of your sin? Do you feel the weight of your sin? One of the greatest men of faith, one of the greatest men of faith that ever lived was most definitely the Apostle Paul. God chose him and called him to be the greatest missionary of the first church. In fact, maybe the greatest missionary of all time. Paul took three missionary journeys and he shared the gospel of Jesus in Asia Minor and Europe. Paul personally himself more than likely established close to 20 churches. And then those churches in, town, in turn gave birth to more churches. Led by God, the Apostle Paul wrote 13 of the New Testament books of the Bible. He was imprisoned, he was beaten, and he was mistreated for the faith, but he never quit and he continued to declare Jesus as Lord and Savior to the point that eventually his life was taken, his head was cut off during the persecution of Nero. That was the Apostle Paul. He was a great man of faith, but he also knew the weight of his sin. Listen to what he wrote in Romans chapter 7. In Romans 7, verse 14 through 24, here's what he writes. He says, I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good as it is. It is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am, who will rescue me 
from this body that is subject to death. Can you hear the tone of what he's saying? Can you hear what he is saying? If the Apostle Paul, who was this great missionary, established these churches, wrote most of the New Testament, if the Apostle Paul feels the weight of his sin like that, let me ask again, do you feel the weight of your sin? Have you ever heard the phrase, in the pits? In the pits. Someone asks, hey, how's it going? And someone else says, I've kind of been in the pits lately. It's an old English idiom, and it means the worst possible situation. Some think that it came back from the time period when people would work in the coal pits, because the coal pits were a nasty, miserable place to be. So someone would say, how you doing? Ah, I'm in the pits today. That's, what that, that's where that comes from. Saying you were in the pits meant that you were miserable. That's the image that this psalm gives us. That's the image of Psalm 130. It's an image, it's the image of being in the pits. We cry out to God because we're in this miserable, desperate, hopeless place. We cry out to God because we are in the depths. We we are far from God. We are far from God and we cry out in despair, we cry out for mercy. Psalm 130 continues. Psalm 130, 1 and 2, and then verse 3 and 4. It says, Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. Verse 3 is asking a big question. Did you catch it? It's a very, very big question. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? God, if you're keeping a record of sins, who's going to be able to stand in your presence? And the answer to that question is obvious. What's the answer? No one. No one's going to be able to stand before God if God's keeping a record of sins. No one is able to stand before God with this innocent record because all of us are guilty of sin. But God is a God of mercy. And with God, there is forgiveness. Look again. Look again at that wreckage on the ocean floor. Look again into that darkness of the ocean floor. It's ominous, it's dark, it's scary. But there is a treasure laying there. There is a treasure laying there. And the treasure is called grace. Because by the amazing grace of God, we can be forgiven. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. You see, there's a treasure there, a treasure called grace. You remember the Apostle Paul, he felt that weight of his sin? Remember the tone of that. 
He just felt that, that weight of his sin. In Romans 7.24, he said, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And then the next verse, he said, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He felt the weight of his sin. What a wretched man I am. Who can rescue me? Thanks to God, he delivers me through Jesus Christ. Paul also once said this. He said, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you through him, everyone who believes is set free from sin. You know, here's the thing. Sometimes we just get way too casual when it comes to grace. Sometimes we just get way too casual when it comes to the grace of God. Forgiveness should not inspire an attitude of entitlement. We don't deserve forgiveness. We should never feel entitled to it. We aren't good enough for forgiveness. We're no better than anybody else who needs the grace of God. All of us need it. None of us have earned it. None of us deserve it. We are not entitled to it. Forgiveness, the Bible tells us, is a gift from God. Don't look in the mirror and think, oh, I'm so much better than my neighbor's. I'm so much better than my cousins. I'm so much better than... We're not. We all need the grace of God. Forgiveness should not inspire an attitude of entitlement. Forgiveness does not give us permission to turn a blind eye towards sin or disregard the obedience that God is calling us to. Forgiveness doesn't mean... Well, I can talk how I want to talk, tell the jokes I want to tell. I can do the things that I want to do because I'm forgiven. Forgiveness doesn't allow us to turn a blind eye and ignore sin. Forgiveness doesn't allow us to, it shouldn't cause us to disregard the obedience that God's calling us to. I know that I'm meant to do this. The Bible explicitly tells me that this is what I'm supposed to do, but you know, I'm forgiven, and I, I'm, I'm weak in that area. I can't, I, I can't really do that. God's forgiven me, though. It's okay. So you see, we, we're way too casual when it comes to the grace of God. Psalm 130, again, we look at our song, this time in verse 4. It says, but with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. The English Standard Version and the, New, and the King James Version says it like this. It says, but with you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. The actual Hebrew word used in, the, in that verse is the word that's used for fear. It, it sounds like a contradiction. Forgiveness, well, shouldn't that take away fear? I mean, shouldn't it? Without forgiveness... Without Christ, fear makes sense. Because without forgiveness for our sins, there will be justice. There will be punishment for our sins. God will take action against those who are guilty. But in Christ, in Christ, our fear of God isn't the fear of judgment. 
We don't fear God because of what he might do to us. We don't fear God because of what he might do to us. Because of Christ and his sacrifice for us, God has promised that he won't do what we deserve. God's not going to do what we deserve. Christ has taken the weight off of us. Jesus took the burden. Jesus took the pain. Jesus took the punishment. He cut us free from the sin that would drag us down. For a Christian to fear the Lord, it's an attitude of respect. It's an attitude of reverence. That's what it means to fear the Lord. It's giving God the respect he deserves because of who he is and what he's done. We respect God for who he is. We respect God for, the, for his authority, for the authority that he is. And we respect God with gratitude and appreciation because of what he did for us. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, there is a natural fear which the, creator ha- which the creature has of its creator because of its own insignificant and insignificance and its maker's greatness. From that we shall never be altogether delivered. With holy awe we shall bow before the divine majesty even when we come to be perfect in glory. You see, what he's saying there is when we know our sin, when we know our sin and we know the forgiveness of God, it should give us an attitude of reverence. When we know how small and unworthy we are and how big and how worthy God is, when we see that contrast, it should give us an attitude of reverence. In Luke chapter 7, a woman is washing the feet of Jesus. She's wetting his feet with her tears. She's wiping them with her hair. And she's pouring out perfume over them. But this woman has a bad reputation. And a Pharisee named Simon sees this happening. And he thinks it's out of line. It's inappropriate. So in Luke 7, verse 39 through 48, this is what we read. It says, When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. May the forgiveness of our sin lead us to a deep reverence for God. And may that reverence for God lead us to worship. And may it lead us to service. And may it lead us to obedience. 
We worship a God who loves us and has forgiven us. We, we serve a God who loves us and keeps no record of sin. We obey, we obey a God who loves us and saved us by grace. Going back to our psalm, Psalm 130, verse 5 through 7. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. First, there is a cry for mercy. Out of the depths I cry out to you, Lord. Then there's a recognition of forgiveness. But with you, there is forgiveness. And then there's a declaration of trust and patience. I wait for the, for the Lord. My whole being waits for the Lord. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for God to rescue us from the depths of our despair. We're waiting for God to rescue us from our sin. Yes, in Christ we are forgiven. In Christ we are forgiven already. Our forgiveness is there. Yes, we are forgiven. Yes, in Christ we are saved from our sin. But we are still living in a broken and fallen world. And we are still waiting for the promise of eternity. And we're still waiting for what it says here in this verse. It says we're still waiting for that full redemption. For the full redemption. We are waiting for God to make all things new again. Revelation 21, verse 1 through 4 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The picture of this psalm The picture that this psalm gives us is a picture of watchmen waiting for the morning. Think of it like this. Think of it like guard duty. It's nighttime. You're on guard duty. Nighttime, bad things can happen. You just want to make it through the night. You don't know what's coming in the darkness. You just want to make it through the night. Because you know that when the sun comes up, The danger is gone. And and the night has been long. You've been on edge. You've been nervous. You've been fearful. You've been alert all night long, responding and reacting to every noise that you've heard. You've been on edge. You're tired. And then the sun comes over the horizon. And the morning has come. There will be a day when the sun comes. Not the S-U-N, 
the S-O-N. There will be a day when the sun comes, and for those who are in Christ, that means the night is over. That means the danger is gone. That means we are safe. That means that our rescue has come. And we are pulled up from the depths. Psalm 130. Psalm 130 was a song that was sung when God's people approached the holy city. They sang this song as God's people approached the holy city. It was a song that began with despair, with a cry for mercy. But that dark place of hopelessness is not where we need to stay. The song doesn't end there. In his book, Embodying Forgiveness, author Greg Jones wrote this. He said, To be forgiven by God, to be initiated in the life of God's kingdom, is to be transferred from one narrative, the narrative of death dealing sin, to the narrative of God's reconciliation in Christ. And the latter narrative, we are forgiven of our sin so that we can learn to become holy through lifelong repentance and forgiveness. The song doesn't end in the depths of darkness. The song ends trusting in the forgiveness of God. And our story becomes a different story. From darkness to light. From despair to hope. A story of God who loves us and rescues us from the depth of our sins. There is a treasure in the darkness, and it's called grace. Thanks for listening. Please take a moment to rate this podcast. May the Word of God be living and active in your life.